Hello and welcome to Tape Notes, the podcast that looks behind the scenes at the magic of recording and producing music. Every episode we'll be reuniting an artist and producer and talking through some of the highlights from their collaboration in the studio. So join us as we lift the lid on the creative process and the inner workings of music production to see what lies beneath. Get it. Hello, I'm John Kennedy, and joining me for this episode of Tape Notes is Jacob Collier to talk about how he recorded and produced the albums Jesse, Volumes 1, 2 and 3. Jacob Collier is a multi-instrumentalist singer, songwriter and producer from London, whose music draws on a huge range of influences from around the world, including jazz, funk, R&B and classical. In 2012, age 17, Jacob began to gain attention for his YouTube arrangements of Stevie Wonder and Gershwin, attracting the praise of music greats such as Herbie Hancock, Chick Corea, David Crosby and Quincy Jones, under whose guidance he released his debut album In My Room. Crafted entirely at home, he recorded and performed every instrument himself. The album reached number one in the US contemporary jazz charts and won two Grammy Awards for the arrangements of the Beach Boys In My Room and the Flintstones theme. Following a world tour of his one-man show, as well as other projects including collaborations with Snarky Puppy, Becca Stevens, Hans Zimmer and Pharrell Williams, Jacob set to work on his next project, Jesse, a quadruple album divided between four volumes, each operating within its own musical universe of sound, style and genre. With volumes one to three released annually from 2018, the project so far has won Jacob two further Grammy Awards and has featured over 30 collaborators, including Leanne Le Havas, Dodie, T-Pain, Ty Dolla Sign and the Metropole Orchestra, among many others. The scope and breadth of his vision and talent have firmly established Jacob as one of the most innovative musicians of his generation. Today, once again due to the COVID lockdown, I'm at home in Borden, South London, and Jacob joins me from his home in North London. And what better way to start our conversation than by hearing something from the record? This is In My Bones. There's a pocket feeling in my bones, in my bones, in my bones, I got that pocket feeling. In My Bones by Jacob Collier from Jesse Volume 3 and I thought that would be a nice lively way to start this episode of Tape Notes because I am connected to Jacob via Zoom. He is in North London in Finchley in your home, is that right? Absolutely correct. It's, it's nice to talk to you, John. It's lovely to talk to you and it's lovely to look into your world, which I have seen online quite a few times because you've used that room, that studio setup you have to perform uh, for many different people. Um, and you seem super on top of technology. Um, I especially enjoyed the, one of the performances where you had four of you all performing at the same time, which was very clever. Oh, thank you very much. That's, that's fantastic. So it's so good to speak to you. I'm mean, really excited about um, unravelling your amazing world of music. And we're going to be looking at the whole Jesse project, um, a track from each of the volumes so far. So uh, the track we heard is In My Bones from Volume 3. So that's the latest volume. As I understand it, there's a fourth volume which 
will emerge in the fullness of time. It will. But it all began with Volume 1, um, which was, I guess, your second album that you released after putting out In My Room in 2016. So what should we know about the whole Jesse world? Hmm. Well, it's quite the ambitious project, I suppose. It was a, a big challenge that I was thrilled to sort of embark on. About two and a half years ago, I had this idea, what if I made one massive project, one album that sort of described or somehow defined how I see the world of music and how connected it all is to itself. And it originally began as one album, you know, Jesse, one album. And it was this huge, massive, you know, swollen thing, you know, really, really saturated. And I realised, you know what, I, I don't want to, to compress the, uh, the dynamic range or whatever of all of these ideas. I want to actually give them space to breathe. So it became two albums, Jesse 1, Jesse 2. And and one was going to be acoustic and one was going to be sort of more electronic and production based. And then I realised that that too was saturated. I had more ideas than I, I could believe. And so I, I wanted to present, you know, even more of a, I suppose, a canvas, a place for me to explain things. So so thus it became three, Jesse Volume 1, 2 and 3. That was the plan, where Volume 1 was, you know, acoustic, huge. So orchestral size spaces, Jesse 2 being smaller, sort of folk based sounds, songwriting, a little bit of... Uh, music from Africa, music from Portugal, things like this, you know, smaller, smaller spaces. And volume three being the kind of uh, electronic pop craziness, which brings the whole thing together, digital sounds, weirdness, electronic sounds. And I realised in my planning that actually even that too was slightly inconclusive. And what I really was was yearning for was some kind of circular feeling about the project where it would end some somewhere about where it began. Thus, the idea of the four volumes was born and Jesse volume four sort of being the combination of all, all of the different, you know, elements of lessons I've learned, sonic environments I've been exploring, collaborations I've been, you know, I've been enjoying and, and things like this, where, you know, all the styles kind of overlap and, and the universe of sound that I've been growing and, and living by for these last, I suppose, 26 years or whatever is, is converged and uh, kind of centralised about the human voice. And so everything was kind of visualised like that. And for the next few months, I would chuck ideas into different piles. I think that's a volume one. That feels incandescent and huge. Or I think that's a volume three pile. That that just sounds really confounding and strange or, or whatever. And I made you know playlists of music that belong to each of these worlds too. And so just sort of lived in it for a while. I, I lived within the world I was hoping to create. And sure enough, it kind of came to fruition piece by piece. I started with volume one and then volume two and volume three are now released, which is actually kind of surreal because it was this impossible dream for so long. And now it's a dream or a lucid dream or whatever. It's actually happening. It's crazy. But Volume 3 dropped a couple of months ago, which is really cool. It was completed almost entirely in quarantine, actually. I, I really enjoyed my sort of bonus four months that I was gifted when my tour was cancelled. And I've been enjoying, the, I guess, the whole arc. But I think, yeah, what would be fun to maybe talk about today a bit is just the whole story kind of musically of how I've been traversing these these different spaces. And, I, you know, there's one song for for each of the albums that I kind of want to dive into a little bit and explain a bit about what was going on in my crazy little brain as these things were coming to life. Yeah. So does that mean you wrote all the songs for all the volumes all in one go, or are you still adding to these piles that you had created for each volume? I'm still adding to the piles every day. Yeah. It's funny because volume one was the only volume I, I really had a strict, small time frame to create within. I, I wrote the whole album in January of 2018 because I booked a flight which is always the best way to finish an album or a project is to book a flight at the end of it. And I had a flight booked to Holland, which I was where I was going to go to record the incredible Metropole Orchestra to a, a, you know, much of the fabric of volume one. And that was on, I think, January 28th. So I, I had from January 1st to 28th to write all the music. And, you know, that included orchestration and, and arranging and a lot of the sort of demo structure of what the songs were going to feel like so I could walk into those 
those sessions and have you know all 60 people be clued up about exactly what they were going to be playing and how and and Jules Buckley the conductor you know for him to have a clue but otherwise it's been a great big sprawl honestly it's been a bit of volume two here a bit of volume three here and you know I've liked I suppose just sort of opening up my process of learning and exploring music which is just it's what I live for you know into this thing that is this breathing project and it ha- it hasn't been very very rigid or organized I guess it's been a, a sort of continuum and every now and then I have to sort of say well I guess that's I guess that's enough for one album and I guess I'll release that album now and I'll move on, you know, and, and so that's kind of how it's been over the last couple of years. Yeah. And so when you're writing these things down, are you actually writing them down on paper or are you recording ideas? Because you're a multi-instrumentalist, you have an amazing array of equipment surrounding you where you are now. Mm. So you can immediately turn to an instrument and put down your ideas using the instrument. However, you've got to communicate these ideas to all these collaborators as well. So which is your preferred method? It's a really good question. Uh, well, it's a whole mixture. I've never been a, a particularly stupendous sort of manuscript reader and writer. You know, I didn't learn music from paper. I really learned it a lot by ear. And, you know, I can read music to an extent and I can sing a, a line that I've written on a page and stuff and I can hear it in my head. I can actually hear it in my head more easily than I can play it normally because that just happens to be the muscle that I've trained. But really with a lot of these songs, it begins with the canvas of of something recorded that is evidence of the initial idea. And, you know, when I was seven years old, I got Cubase software, which was really great fun. And I began to sort of compute the idea that it's possible to layer things on top of one another, bass, drums, vocals, guitar, and whatever. And that was really thrilling. And for my 11th birthday, I was endowed with Logic, like when it was owned by eMagic, which is the good old days or whatever. Um, And so, yeah, that was kind of early days for me, obviously in my life, but... um, you know, Logic was my main instrument, I suppose. It wasn't particularly that I thought of myself as a, I'm a pianist or I'm a bassist or I'm a singer. You know, I was all of these things to a point, but really I was a musician before I was an instrumentalist. And what Logic enabled me to do was visualize it all at once, you know. And so I would be listening to all this different music, whether it was, I don't know, I grew up on a lot of Stevie Wonder and Earth and Fire and Bobby McFerrin and, and then a lot of weird stuff like Bjork and Beck and interesting flavors, you know, like this. And then also I had Bartok and Stravinsky and, and Bach. And and then there was Joni and there was Bob Dylan. And then there were weird things like Deerhoof and Dirty Projectors and, you know, all sorts of things. And I loved everything. I was such a sponge. Well, I was going to say, we should say that, I mean, your, your mother is a, a classical musician. She plays violin. So that would explain all those classical things. But totally. uh, that breadth that you alluded to from Stevie Wonder to Deerhoof, um, who was introducing those people to you? Well, it was a mixture between things that my mum really loved and things that I would just stumble across or a friend of mine would say, have you heard this thing, you know? And so I would say things like Deerhoof. I discovered Deerhoof when I was about 16 or 17 and I got into this process. I I went to the Royal Academy of Music here in London for two out of a four-year degree, two years, studying jazz piano. And it was a a very interesting exercise for me. Um, And one of my favourite things about the whole of those two years, besides going and learning how to understand and play jazz was actually to listen to one whole album on the bus ride to the academy and one on the bus ride home from the academy. And so I did this huge, huge kind of opening of music as I'd heard it and I wanted to dig as deep as possible into all these things I loved. And I would listen to sort of whole discographies of musicians that I that I, I respected. But a lot of the initial tastes, I suppose, were based in music that I'd loved before I was 10 years old. And it's funny, I've spoken to lots of musicians about this and I feel like sometimes 
you know, when you're a teenager, you kind of, you discover all these strange new flavors and you stretch the things and you oppose things you've liked and stuff. But at the end of the day, I find myself coming back to the, the, those first 10 years and finding a huge amount of, of influence and power that I can draw from, you know, those first things that became part of my sort of DNA that I can't shake myself from. And for me that, you know, Bobby McFerrin was a huge one and Stevie and Sting as well. I would almost say those three were the kind of, you know, on really heavy rotation, I suppose. And and so that was the basis. And, and that was very much a sort of family-led thing, I guess. My mum would say, I love this. Let's put this on again and again and again. And, and she was up for sort of me obsessively listening to one recording over a hundred times. And, you know, everyone would be so sick of it, but I would just, I'd want to stay with it and stay with it. And that was a really important part of my learning, actually, was just to sit with one thing and learn every single aspect, every nuance, every every note, every rhythm, how the rhythm felt, whether it was wonky or straight and and what the kind of sounds were I was hearing, it's sort of high and low sounds and sounds that were wide and sounds that were narrow. And I suppose what became available to me in the space that I was able to operate within, which is this room as a boy, was all these different axes of ways in which you can hear and understand music. You know, So there's the harmony side, there's the rhythm side, there's the melodic side, there's the sonic side of things. And then, you know, there's yeah, how much space around the sound or how much space between the sections or how much connective tissue there is between the different elements that you're hearing. All these interesting things that I was pretty actively thinking about as a boy, but I didn't have the tools to express anything with them until I kind of got deep in logic in my mid-teens. Right. Amazing. And all of those elements, of course, are fundamental to how you work now. You know, you consider all of those things in your highly complex pieces that you compose and that you share and that you work on with other people. And we're going to get a chance to kind of see how that all works by examining three songs that are from volumes one, two and three of Jesse. And we're going to start at the beginning with a, a selection from volume one. And I, I'm intrigued to know how much of the genesis of your projects we're, we're going to be able to get to hear. Does it begin with humming into a phone hmm. or, or does it start with playing at the piano? Totally, yeah. So I, I think it would be fun to start with this song, With the Love in My Heart, which it was the moment where the whole project kind of clicked for me because I'd planned it all out. But then I, I realised that as I was making, I was sort of playing with the orchestra and I was playing with what an orchestra could do. And with this song, I felt like, oh, I think I'm touching it. I think I'm touching the thing I want to I want to be chasing for the next few years. And so With the Love of My Heart, is it's not a particularly traditional song. Like it doesn't really have a verse and a chorus and a middle eight and a nice fade out at the end. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a really kind of kaleidoscopic opening. And, and this was actually the first song that I released of the whole project. It was actually kind of single number one. And, and it's almost like five or six songs put together, you know, put into one and starts with this great big orchestral sound, um, this huge sort of A mixolydian cluster chord. And from there, it goes into all these different twists and turns from super funky stuff to kind of trap drum things. And you've got these interesting rhythmic cycles and this folk melodies that sort of weave in and out that you would then hear on later volumes of Jesse and different songs. And there's a great big funky moment in the middle where everything gets kind of gets really um, stanky, you know? And then at the very end, it kind of collapses into this this peaceful mantra, which takes me through the, the whole project, I suppose. And that, that mantra is, what is it? It's a uh, keep in motion, stay unspoken. And if I'm broken, keep me open. And it was uh, something I found, I wrote it down or something. I thought, this is a nice thing to sort of be cradled by it. It's a nice thing to remember, you know? It's almost like I don't know where this journey is going to actually lead me, sort of, you know, musically, but also obviously as a person. And so the quest to discover that became the kind of joy of the whole thing. Um, and so the combining of all these different elements became 
the point of the project. It became the thing I was chasing. And this song really encapsulates the spirit of what it meant to discover all of these different flavours. So where are we going to start then, Jacob? Now, there is a lot to get our ears around. Teeth into, yeah. Um, yes. Well, it all began with With the Love of My Heart, with a sound. And it's a sound that I made. And I actually have videos of me walking around this room, pacing my room, just filled with the kind of, filled with the birth of it, the energy of it. And I watched the project come to life to this, this sound here. So what's that created on? So this here is a mixture of different things. It's uh, it's brass. It's like synth brass sounds, uh, lots of voices, or whatever. And there's also some tubular bells and there's something, I think it might be some kind of piano, which is sort of dotting around, you know, and it's a huge, it's a huge cluster chord. And this is one of my favorite things in the world. It's just chords with notes really, really close together. So you know, in this chord, you've got like a G and an A and a B and a C sharp and a D and an E and an F sharp. So all the notes in, in sort of D major, and they're all happening at the same time. So you've got voices dotting around in there. there. You've got voices rising, rising, sort of bubbling to the surface. And then I played this groove. And this groove is it's a bit of a tongue twister for the brain. And you think it's in five, but it's actually in seven. And I'll explain that now. You think it's three, four, five. One, two, three, four. But it's actually one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Dig of one, two, dat, dig, 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 so that, that was something that really got under my skin. I thought, oh, this is great. I don't know how to feel it. And if there's something you can feel two ways, it gets me excited. So the birth of the thing was that I thought, okay, this is going to take me somewhere. I can feel it's going to take me somewhere. Let's kind of see where we end up. And I, I, I've got something else here I wanted to play you because this song was actually originally kind of imagined as the end of the first three songs on volume one, which are called Home Is, and then there's an overture, and then there's With the Love of My Heart. And actually they're kind of one piece. It's like one 15 minute piece. And so one of the things I wanted to solve was how do I get from the overture to With the Love of My Heart? But before I'd recorded all of the orchestral musicians, I, I'd recorded all the orchestra on MIDI. So I'd sat here in this chair and I'd played every note of every instrument sort of in this great big sort of 60 contact instruments. And I'd I got them to sound approximately like an orchestra would sound in real life, which obviously was completely blasted open when I really recorded with an orchestra. And it was really an incredible feeling to see this kind of ploddy MIDI orchestra suddenly just be real, like real people. But this was the kind of imagination of that transition in its first incarnation. incredible to think that it's so fully realized hmm. before you went to the Netherlands, before you um, met that appointment that you'd given yourself, that flight that you had to take right. in order to work with the orchestra. Yet so fully realized, every single note. It's kind of all there. It was an interesting thing and a, a privilege in the 21st century to be able to play a whole orchestra from your own home, you know. But I loved imagining the, the overture before I could hear it in the room. 
I suppose it's almost like a sort of millennial way of composing, but I like to put things in, in particular places and just see how they feel. And if I fast forward a tiny bit, got this dissonant chord here, and then a resolution. And this sound is the sound I just played you. And so this is how I linked it, the connective tissue. Right. So this is the end of the overture here. Now we're into With the Love. And it's like the birth of this new world. And then you'll hear that the drums will come in in, in just one second. Here's the melody. No sky above me, no hell below me, no wind behind me, no path before me. So it's almost like nothing is, there's nothing. I've got to create this world for myself. And I'm going to do it in the name of this kind of love that I'm feeling for for something, whether it's music or the universe or myself or all of humankind or something I don't understand, you know, whatever it happens to be. It's like, but with the love of my heart, somehow I found you. And that's the kind of, that's the, the permeative lyric that that passes through the whole song. But with the love of my heart, I'm and then you've got this drums here. And obviously this is really early demo sound, so it, it kind of sounds really, really tinny and stuff. But it's interesting, actually, I haven't listened to this for ages. It's funny to hear it all back like this. So, you know, obviously that, that's how I kind of first, that's how I first imagined it. And if I play a little bit of the real thing, so as you can hear I, I kind of uh, chopped up the orchestra a lot I did a lot of um, interesting stuff once I got all those tracks it's like what happens if you take the flute and you go or you loop a little bit of the flute or you make it kind of go or slow down or put a strange filtery thing on it and I loved that. I felt like a, a kid in a candy store with all these orchestral tracks in Logic, thinking like, wow, you know, there's so much potential for what an orchestra can really sound like. And a lot of people who record orchestras, you know, in the world, a lot of the way in which people think about them are as these sort of performative entities that sound the way that they do live and stuff. But I think for me, one of the most exciting things was thinking, well, an orchestra is just a, it's basically just like a, a source of sound, you know, and I can make an orchestra sound like so much from my room from here and so you know I went out with these pretty defined kind of ideas for how I wanted the orchestra to sound and and with the love of my heart it was like taking it all back to the drawing board and making something out of it you know whatever so changing its shape sonically and making it have some kind of life I suppose. Yeah amazing uh, amazing to think that on your own in your room you created the orchestra then you went to the orchestra recorded the orchestra then took those recordings back and continue to play with them and kind of reinvent the orchestra mm. again in your room. It, you can't stop working, it would seem to me. That, no, uh, <laughs> I, I, I really I really can't. I love every every element of of the process. And I was actually I was gonna show you one thing um which I, I quite enjoy uh, to talk about. And yeah, within this section, there's all sorts of different levels to the music mm. as I hear it and understand it. So you know you've got the kind of percussive elements and you know here, here's one of the percussive elements underneath the funky section of the song, which sounds like this. Mm. 
so I, I kind of figured that out and then I had these yeah these brass figures add the bass in too and to glue it all together I have this kind of stomp clap thing And there's an interesting story behind the uh, stomp clap samples that I used within this song. Uh, I did a tour in 2017 and it, it ended in the UK. It was a UK tour. Hooray. And um, there was a gig in, I think it was in Manchester. And I had this idea that I, I didn't have the kind of we will rock you. boom. I didn't have any sounds that sounded like that. And I wanted them for this song. I thought for with the love of my heart, I want to get this like vroom, these amazing sounds. And so I asked the audience, I said, hey, it was after the show, like so encore time. I said, hey, do you want to help me out with some with some samples? I said, yeah, sure. Yeah, let's do it. And so I said, okay, so half of you get out your phones, which I never ask anybody to do in a live performance because it's it's always the most boring of things when people get out their phones in gigs. But I said, look, get out your phone, half of you. And the other half of you, I want you to do this rhythm. And so I said, you got to stomp this rhythm. It goes boom, boom, ba, boom, ba, boom, boom, ba, boom, ba, boom, boom, ba, boom, ba. And... Uh, and so they did, and the people filmed it. And I said, okay, everyone who filmed this, upload the video uh, to Twitter or Instagram or something with the hashtag uh, JCStompClap. And later on, I'll go through them and put them all together and make it into a, and, you know, like basically use it as a, you know, use it as a sample base. And I have those sounds here, actually. I might just show you because they're, they're really fun. <laughs> and so great. these are the sounds that, that you heard at the gig. And you got some And so I've chucked all of these into a battery instance. But they sound really fat and awesome, you know. It's like a Yeah. So that's just a collection of all the, the audience's own recordings that it's, they've it's, uploaded yeah. for you to have a listen to. It's just twenty-four wow. mobile phones, basically, combined Amazing. and kind of compressed and you know, I took the ones that where the high end was cool and the ones where the low end was cool and I, I put them into separate buses and compress them differently and put some different EQs on and sort of bounce them on out to the samples, threw them into battery. And it was intended for this song with the love of my heart, but I've actually used them in all sorts of stuff since because it gives me a sort of warm feeling. It's like, yeah, that's my crowd. Yeah, that's just my, that's my people. Yeah. <laughs> what a brilliant idea. Because in another way, you could have just pointed a microphone at the crowd and recorded it then and there. And maybe you did as well. I don't know. But also to activate them, as it were, to turn them on and switch on their own technology for your benefit. Right, exactly. Um, it's a really interesting yeah. idea. It's an amazing time we're living in because, you know, everyone's actually carrying around with them a, a pretty decent camera and a pretty decent microphone these days. And you, you, mm. you sort of think, well, actually, that's an unbelievable resource, you know, if you actually want to want to use it. It's, 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 it's just amazing. You know, it's, it's really incredible. It is incredible to think that you're combining all these different things. So not only, you know, the Metropole Orchestra, the incredible orchestra, at the top of their game, you know, in, yeah, yeah. A, in a league of their own, then you're utilising your audience as well to, to use them as a source material. And then obviously you've got your studio, your own studio setup, which it seems to be an extension of your limbs and brain, mm -hmm, um, the way right. that you use it. Um, so it's all this one big living organism that you're just trying to realise a song as well. But it's an extraordinary song because it changes and shifts and mutates throughout the course of the six minutes. You know, mm, it's, yeah, I, I like the idea of sort of being swept off my, my feet by something. And I try to create experiences for myself as a listener or as a creator that sweep me off my feet. It's like, oh, I can't believe, oh, what's that? Where did that come from? I can't, what is it? Oh, no idea what's going on. And But sort of being, that being filled with kind of intention and, and warmth and, and, uh, 
and, and stuff. I think that's a really magical space for me. And so, you know, absolutely, there's all these different ingredients um, being combined. But I think that the kind of the overarching puzzle piece for me is is this kind of explosion of discovery, which is honestly, it's pretty real. Like it's kind of as I discover it, I put it on the record, you know, and and it's amazing for me to look back. And yeah, I rarely open these logic sessions back up, but it's amazing just to look around them and think, wow, I, that's just where I left it, you know? Yeah. And I have a really lovely kind of memory of what it felt like to ju- have discovered it at that exact moment. It's like, that's the moment that the brush touched the page. And and I left it like that because you sort of feel the energy. There's energy in those decisions where they kind of come out of the blue. Yeah. And I, I'm just looking at this very first chord. And even here, there's a, there's a few different sounds. One of them is this, which I like. I remember making this sound. It's like a combination of tubular bells and timpanis and sort of crotales and harp and all sorts of stuff. It's one of my favorite things ever. I actually set it as my alarm for a few weeks because I really liked it. It's like, blah, 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 wake up. Blah, 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 you know? uh, but then there's there's this choir, Votchis 8, who are a choir that were on uh, the first track of Jesse Volume 1 called Home Is. And this is actually a sample from Home Is. And then they are slowed down at the end. So I love, you know, yeah. manipulating these acoustic sounds. And and then there's this, which is a bunch of uh, kind of radio static that I recorded mm. from a radio, which I like because it's almost like, where, where, you know, it's like trying to find what you're trying to listen to. It's like, what are we listening to here? And, and then you've got the orchestra there being tremendous. And you've got great big gong and these huge things. You've got a Celeste here. Glockenspiel. There's a harp over there. And these are all in the cluster chord? These are actually aside from the cluster chord. That first right. tinkle cluster chord was just a little sound that I made that was my my, sort of, uh, my alarm clock. But yeah, but yeah sort of along the side, there's all these... All these other things. Here's a sort of chimes, wind chimes in reverse that I pitched up. You hear them travelling from left to right to left to right. And I love the idea that you can zoom into... A sound, and you can follow all these individual paths, these individual stories, sort of almost like individual characters throughout. And one of the magical things about this song for me was that it's the introduction of so many kind of motifs that appear later in the album. So, you know, you've got this like that you hear a lot. There's a little bit of it there, and then you've got this. like a, a folk melody that I wrote for later in this piece that um, that's that in reverse and you hear that come back in Jesse volume 2 and even Jesse volume 3 and definitely in Jesse volume 4 and so a lot of the kind of bases of of the experiments of the things this song contains so many kind of little nuggets of of DNA that kind of overarch across all four of the albums and so so for me there's so much kind of discovery bottled up in, in this this particular kind of moment in time. Incredible. Do we need to move on from this song and move on to uh, volume two? Or is there anything else that we're, should we hear a blast of the finished version of With the Love in My Heart? I think that might be fun. Uh, I'll play you just a couple of tiny elements of this section and then I'll put the whole thing together and we can hear a little blast of what it sounds like all together. So this is the sort of second verse. Sounds like this and it's broken down form. Tambourine there. Chopping up the orchestra, which is fun, making it into drums. Some djembe that I recorded here at home. More percussion. 
Pandero, which I recorded here at home. Some drums. All these different layers and, and elements of things, and you've obviously got the strings here. And then you've got all the voices up the top. Do you wanna sing with me? Or do you wanna sing? I've been talking here too long. How could your bones feel old with a voice so young? Ooh. She said, Jesse got a sky like a merry-go-round. He don't ever make a sound. Put your hands on me, baby, touch the ground. And you combine that all together, and it sounds a little something like this. Someone to make my heart beat. Don't want you fucking to yourself that sweet. Is that bass playing yours, or is that somebody in the orchestra? That's mine, actually. Yeah, I recorded that bass, and so all of the kind of rhythm section stuff was done here, just because it's it's easy. Mm. You know, I've got a room which is able to do that, but I loved being able to extend the limbs of my kind of imagination into things that I couldn't dream of doing, like being a whole string section. You know, you just cannot do that if you're yeah. one person, unless you use samples. And so the thrill of going to Holland and working with Jules and hearing this stuff played out and thinking about, you know, what, what would give it the most precision and the most energy and trying to kind of describe the, the thing I was, I was trying to put together. It was, it was a real challenge. And I'd never really orchestrated before in this way. I'd never sat down and thought, I'm going to orchestrate a project. And obviously that means you know, deciding what every single instrument is going to play at what particular time. And I then worked with Jules and his team of amazing people to sort of get that into sheet music form, you know, went through those Sibelius scores with a fine tooth comb, making sure everything looked right and stuff. And then I, I, you know, I flew over to Holland and we put the whole thing together and it was a, a real thrill. But obviously that's the, rather than being the end of the process, that was almost like the beginning of the process or the, the end of phase one, because, you know, some of my favourite moments about writing this particular song just came when I was sit back at home here and I was discovering what sorts of you know, skullduggery was possible with all these stems when they were combined in weird and wonderful ways. Fantastic. We're going to take a break. But before that, let's hear the full effect once more. Just another snippet so we can get our ears around it or attempt to uh, just one more time. Amazing. With the love in my heart from Jesse Volume 1, we're going to take a quick break and we're going to look at a song from Jesse Volume 2 in just a moment. You may have heard us talk about Tape It before, and if you haven't, then let me fill you in, as they are the sponsor of today's episode with a fantastic offer for you. Tape It is an iPhone recording app made by musicians for musicians. Many of our guests on Take Notes, music industry friends and listeners rely on voice notes to record their early ideas. People like the Lumineers, Ezra Collective and Fred again have all shared recordings with us made on voice notes. But what you wouldn't have heard are the long pauses where they're searching for those recordings. We wouldn't want to put you through that. 
As you can understand, organizing and finding the right notes, let alone a specific part, can be a nightmare. Tapeit solves all of that voice memo chaos with intuitive labeling features, including automatic instrument detection, markers, and collaborative mixtapes, meaning you can share band practices, organize set lists, and brainstorm ideas with co-writers and band members. Plus, you can record straight from your lock screen and attach text and photo notes to each recording. One of our favorite features within Tapeit Pro is that you can record in stereo using two microphones along with gentler dynamic compression to give a much more natural sound than any of the usual apps. It's a huge upgrade to the microphone and all-round audio quality. It really helps support the podcast whenever you engage with our sponsors. So if Tapeit sounds like an app you'd use, then do us a favor. Pause the episode, head to the link in a recent episode show notes, or visit tape.it forward slash tape notes and give tape it a go. That's tape.it forward slash tape notes. You can download for free or use the promo code tape notes for 50% off tape it pro. Thank you. And now on with the show. Did you do it? Honestly, Tape It is fantastic. All of the Tape Notes team members are complete converts. And excitingly, some of our guests have started to use it as well. So I really would recommend checking it out. So one thought, Jacob, um, with the love in my heart, uh, how many how many actual session tracks are there? How many tracks in the session? I should uh, say. Uh, it's a great question. So actually with this session, there are actually three different logic sessions, which are kind of simultaneously being used. There's the sort of master session where everything's put together. And I, I think, yeah, I think that one's sort of into the 300s, but then there are these two subsidiary sessions, one with the orchestral tracks. And obviously when you, even if you just record one take of one instrument with the orchestra, it's about 60 tracks because of all the microphones in the orchestra and stuff. So the orchestral session is, I think, probably about 200 or 250 tracks. And then there's a different session actually for a bunch of the, the drums and the funk production, which is probably about 150. So Overall, I think I have it written down somewhere that with the love of my heart is about 720 combined simultaneous tracks. So, so you know, vertical rows of, of music they're playing, which is actually kind of ridiculous to think about. But um, <laughs> somehow my CPU is uh, still breathing. <laughs> I don't, don't, know, don't know why, but yeah. I mean, that is bananas. <laughs> it actually is kind in, of bananas. In a way. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, it's hard to get a grip on considering, you know, so this um, six minute 48 second piece of music you know has over 700 tracks on it really ultimately that's all coming from your mind because it begins just with you you might involve other people and then it ends again just with you putting all these things back together and that's one of the amazing things about you as an artist because i mean you do love collaborating and you work with lots of different people um, and they work in different ways with you be they a featured vocalist or or the orchestra, or the conductor, etc. But at the same time, you're still trying to realise your vision, which is all about you and the crazy things that you come up with. You no, know, and the idea that with the Jesse volumes, it's constantly moving and shifting all the time. So although you had the idea of the three and then four volumes that you were going to work on, your idea of what you want to achieve and what you're trying to express is changing. And I find that fascinating because obviously, you know, to end something is to fix it. It's a finished product. It's a finished piece. Mm. We know where, where it is. And, and that's quite good for you as an artist as well to reach completion and feel that you've got somewhere and you've done it and you mm. can move on to the next project. So having completed volume one, knowing that you wanted to do another three volumes, how do you then 
start the next stage? You know, you had a good idea of what you wanted to do with it, but how do you then realise it? It's a good question. I mean, when I was a teenager, one of the things I was worst at was finishing stuff. I just, I didn't have it together. It's a skill. You have to practice it. I didn't have it together. Mm. I started hundreds and hundreds of things. I started writing stories. I started, you know, writing a novel. I started putting a book of, you know, different lists of poems and ideas and, and diagrams and lots and lots and lots and lots of music as well. You know, orchestral pieces and songs that I was trying to write and little funny little grooves I was making and all this stuff. And so I think with Jesse, one of the reasons I was so enamoured by the idea from the start was that I knew I'd have to nail completing stuff. I'd have to learn how to do it because otherwise I simply wouldn't survive. And so actually Jesse Volume 1 was a bit like being dunked in the deep end on that because I had a month to write, you know, nine fully fledged orchestral scores in amongst the kind of structures that I was imagining in my mind as well. And so after Volume 1, Volume 2 was actually a, a little bit of a, I mean, I, I wouldn't say like a walk in the park, but it was like, oh, at least we'd have to do orchestra. <laughs> at least I'd have to deal with exporting the tracks, you know, out of the Pro Tools sessions, we recorded them in Holland with into Logic and then maintaining all the automation data there and then going through each individual track and decreaking it and declicking it and and making sure the high end is consistent and, and all this stuff. And it was just, it was a lot of, you know, a, a lot of work. And I would add that my really dear friend, Ben Bloomberg was a massive asset there. He was actually with me in Holland when we were recording it together and he helped to kind of engineer that sound. And, and when we came home, it was a, you know, just that long process of trying to make those tracks sound as good as possible and as consistent as possible with the sounds I was recording here in this little room, which is obviously very different. So I, I think for me, that workload was so heavy that with Jesse Volume 2, it was almost like, oh, thank goodness, I can just go home and I can just do some stuff. The other thing that I realise about myself um, increasingly is that when I have a deadline of something I need to complete, it's increasingly appealing to do things that aren't uh, about the thing I'm supposed to be doing. You know, So if I have to be doing Volume 1, then it's very appealing to me to just like sneakily start volume two or start an idea for volume two. And I, I find the edges of my, of like what I'm supposed to be doing to be an extremely creative, sort of fertile soil for ideas. And so actually by the time volume one dropped, I'd recorded and written a lot of the volume two songs because I'd been right. kind of, you know, on the edge of the volume one word, I'd be thinking, well, you know, what else could I be explaining? What else could I, what, what's the stretchy zone? And so in that stretchy zone, I'd, I'd recorded a few different ideas of songs, which I didn't really sit down and tackle until volume one was out and ready. And obviously, this is obviously in, in amongst touring. You know, I was sort of doing a world tour and I was running around the world doing all sorts of other things, directing my music videos and editing the music videos and doing interviews and stuff like this. And so it was actually a really intense lifestyle. And it's funny from 2020 to look back at the last couple of years, 18 and 19, and look, just read the diaries that I was keeping. And it would be sort of like Monday morning, wake up at 4 a.m. and fly to Poland and play a gig with Jules and an orchestra and then come home. And then I've got sort of four hours to sleep and then I have to get on a plane and go to New York and do a tiny desk concert and then I had a session with Chris Martin the next day and then and you see in the gaps of these things I was actually writing some of the music that was on the albums it was crazy to it's crazy just to think about and you know I, I really marvel at I guess just how it how it all even got finished and I think it's easy to sort of think that nothing's ever good enough when you're doing it but sometimes when you look back you think wow yeah you were really carrying a lot back then and and that's an amazing thing just to realize and the nice thing about volume three which we'll get to later is that it was a, you know, a luxurious amount of time in comparison, having sort of having been about to embark on a world tour, a 10-week first leg of the world tour back in March. And obviously that went out the window four days before we went into the studio to start rehearsing for it. It was this crazy moment of recalibration where I realised that actually, why did I have to release volume three so soon? I could spend more time. So I had these four bonus months to, to dig in. And I, I think that sonically I've learned a lot from that process. But with Jesse volume two, 
it was somewhere between, you know, I was still working fast. Um, whenever I could be working, I was working, you know, and, and when I wasn't on the road and stuff. And so the song that I've chosen, I'd like to talk about from volume two is called Nebalu Yo. And it's, a, it's a, a, another sort of whirlwind adventure, but it comes from a very different set of places musically. And also it features a couple of really special musicians to me um, that I think will be fun to talk about. Yeah, excellent. And one of the featured musicians is Uma Sangare from mm. Mali. Um, I mean, I was just going to mention, though, that um, you say that for volume two, it seemed a lot simpler, but you still put together 16 tracks. You know, mm. it, it, there are more songs on volume two. And, and <laughs> some of those also have that massive wide approach in that the version of Moon River features a 144 part choir mm. that you put together in interesting way. So so you still had this crazy reach for what you were trying to include in the simpler yeah, <laughs> volume in comparison yes, it, to volume one. Exactly, yeah. I think it's funny because, you know, often people describe me as a maximalist, you know, and I, I, don't, mm. th- I don't think they'd be wrong there. I think I, I do. There's a massive catharsis about combining all these different sounds, putting them all together. But I think that for me, what I'm learning increasingly is how to be resourceful with the sounds that we're using because you know it's not like one of the tracks in the 720 logic session uh tracks is there for no reason you know they're all there for a really specific reason they all have a particular effect on the momentum or the gravity or the harmony or or slight difference in pocket you know if you had just a little bit of tambourine just on the edge of beat two it just keeps the you know and so i I think about these things sort of emotionally and, and consciously and so for me you know when i write a simple song you know there's a song on jesse volume two called a feel, which features Leanna Havas, who is just amazing. Mm. And that song is not a particularly complex song. And actually, it just features the bass. It's Pino Palladino on the bass, and I'm playing drums. And it's just 200 vocals, like walls and walls of vocals. And I love it. It's like a bath, a bathing in vocals. And I think it's interesting to say, okay, here's a simple song. And then to let the song go free in the production space, often for me means bathing it in all these different layers of intention and gravity and 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 stuff. And and it's funny because volume three, actually, I feel like I stripped down some of the layers the most, even though with volume two, there's also some of this very dense stuff. I think I, I really enjoy the dance between the simple and the complex, you know, and I guess it's almost a bit like looking at nature or something. It's like, oh, this is a flower and it's it's just a flower. But if you zoom in, look at all the properties it has and look at the way that it affects the flowers around it and it affects itself. And, you know, I, I don't really mean to compare my music to a flower, but I think that things that kind of have a natural sense of momentum when they're let to be what they are and you just sort of let them go free in a in a canvas space within art it is interesting to sort of see where where things fall and then to almost like to listen to it after it's been completed and think oh interesting that it ended up like that you know i, I didn't really think about it too much i didn't really plan it too much um but you know I, I enjoy taking some of these you know some of the ideas that i have even if they're very simple and trying to describe them in as as full colors as i possibly can yes so Nebeluyo, and I'm going to keep pronouncing this title Nebeluyo. in a, a myriad different ways. Yeah, I, it's not actually, yeah, I don't know if I'd say it right, if I'm being completely honest with you. But um, yeah, so Nebeluyo was a was a song that I composed in part with this incredible Malian singer called Uma Sangare. And she is, she's just a legend. She's a, a straight up mm. legend. She's been a hero of mine for some time. She's an incredibly port, an important musician to, to African music, really, and, and the way that she carries a melody and carries the lyrics and the sort of intensity behind the notes that she sings is sort of unlike anybody I've ever heard. And it was a real pipe dream for me to have Umu on a song. And uh, it just so happened that she was playing a, a gig in London uh, at Earth, 
uh, in Hackney and um, I went along to see the show and I managed to um, to see that energy happen before my eyes. And while she was in London, I also managed to find a way for her to actually come over to this very room. And so she came over here and we spent, well, it was actually two different afternoons at different times, but we, you know, we, we spent probably in total about 10 hours just kind of throwing paint together. And it was fascinating to me because she didn't speak a word of English. And so one of the biggest challenges from my perspective was how do I get the ideas into her universe? How do I get them to her, into her sort of ether in a way that makes sense to her? Not just that she understands at all, but that actually she can respond to. Because, you know, on the one level, you can articulate yourself to someone, but, a, you know, a few degrees up, there's like actually describing your intention and inspiring a, a sense of storytelling that comes out of someone. So, you know, I, I remember I I, uh, I didn't really have an idea um, she was coming over at 11 a.m. and I'd been to a concert and on the way home at 11 p.m. I was sort of hurriedly saying oh, into my phone, into voice moments where I often used to write, I was saying, oh, I could do, you know, or whatever, singing some things that I'd heard her do brilliantly that night. And, you know, I could do whatever, some other ways of operating within her world from my perspective. And and I, I really, I didn't find something that I liked. And so I woke up at 7 a.m. on the day of the session. I thought, oh, geez, I'm going to have to do something. And so I, I hit the ground running. And, and one of the first things that I, I did the sort of the the sound that got me into it was a sound that has fascinated me for probably about ten years now, and it's it's the sound of Gnawa music. And there's there are these instruments called karakebs, and they are I hope that's the right way of saying it. And they underpin a lot of the Gnawa music that exists on on the streets of Morocco and has existed for many years. And and it, it sounds like this. And so that sound has haunted my dreams for a long, long time. And uh, I actually collaborated with a musician on Jesse Volume 1 called Hamid El Kasri, who's a sort of Gnawa legend in his own right. And so I had some Gnawa sounds from those sessions. And so I used, uh, you know, I used the groove. I used some of that pocket that we've been recording for this song with Umu. And th this was the basis. Uh, and actually, yeah, Umu and Hamid uh, are friends. And so that was exciting for me to realize that there's a, already a kind of bridge that exists between Malian music and Moroccan music in terms of that way of thinking. And so... You know, I wanted to kind of expand the word of Gnawa into something else, into something that had groove and pocket. And and so I, I laid down this this funny little basis of an idea. It was like a Gnawa thing. And I sort of sang a melody and it was almost like a loop. And she came over and, and she heard the loop and she she kind of got inside it. And it was an interesting thing where I the, the loop was playing and she was there and she was sort of nodding her head. And I was thinking, oh, I wonder what she thinks. I, I don't know. <laughs> I hope I'm doing something that she can do something with in some way. And, and she was nodding her head and, and she, you know, she said, oh, I like it. It's cool. And I said, okay, all right, well, should we, you know, should we start writing? Should we start recording? And I said, okay, well, I'll leave the mic on and I'll go around and around and you can just sing things that come into your mind. And I was thinking, oh, I hope this is how, you know, I hope this is a respectful way to treat this sort of goddess type figure. I hope this is fine. And so I rolled the microphone and round went the loop, round and round. And Umu sang a little bit of something and something. And it was kind of early in the morning for her as well to be singing. So she was kind of like, well, uh, you know, singing a little bit and getting into it. And and it was okay. And we we got something that was all right. And then she started singing this different thing. Sort of after the loop had trailed off, she started singing this other thing, which is almost like a vocal groove, you know, like this. And I said, oh, I like that. I like that. And so I, I took that line and I, I recorded using the same microphone. I recorded a bunch of that in harmony, you know, you know, and I laid them up as I tend to do, and it was, it was sort of done quite fast, so so that she had something to work with instantaneously. And and she she really really suddenly came alive. It was like wow, I've I found a bridge. I've made a bridge between 
MySpace and UmuSpace. And it wasn't the thing that I had prepared in advance. It was the thing that we found when we were both slightly out of our comfort zones and she was just kind of riffing. And then I riffed on the thing that she was riffing. And the moment that we connected there, I think she saw me do this recording process and bring something to life. I sort of manifested this thing that I was hearing. And I, I think she was a little moved by it, I think. And she was inspired enough to have a bunch of crazy ideas. And she, after that moment, she just kind of went for it. And all these amazing melodies and lyrics came out. And we looped that passage. I can actually play a little bit of what that sounds like, uh, which is... And so a lot of those sounds are made by by voices. And actually, I might thought it might be fun just to break them down for you. So these are all the voices that we recorded on that day at that moment. That's Uma making some fabric there. We've got her lead vocal, of course. And underneath, you've got the things that I recorded at that moment. Just as a little basis for her to work with some claps as well. And so your singing sounds that you like the sound of and that feel right, did she start singing words that had meaning and uh, a thrust to them um, in response to those sounds? Yeah, she did. It was. It's funny because when I turn on my kind of melody hat or head, lyrics don't flow out naturally for me particularly. I don't think in words, I think in words outside of music, but not particularly when it comes to lyrics. Whereas, so what I was going to say was often when I'm writing a melody, I'll just kind of go, and then I'll go back later and think, what, what? is the thing that sounds kind of like what I'm mumbling, but is actually a word, mm. you know, it's a coherent sentence. She seemingly doesn't have that this problem. And when I sort of let her roll these things, she would come up with complete sentences. And they were amazing sentences as well. And I asked her what they meant. And Nibalu Yo, I, I believe, translates as all the mothers. I think that's what it translates as. Or, or perhaps that's Musulu, uh, either Nibalu Yo or Musulu, the, the two main lyrics that she just sort of came out with. Um, it's about being a mother in a figurative sense, you know, and also about... I suppose the relationship that you can have with the world around you, you know, the the mother of the world. This is some of the lyrics I say in the middle, the mother of the world, the force that brings the life. And I think it's almost like a, a grounding of sorts that I really feel with her presence in the room. She's such a grounder. Mm. She's so kind of, she's one of these people that has this tremendous amount of gravity. And it's like, wow, I can't believe it. She's really, you know, I sort of thought, is she even going to fit inside my room? You know, she's just so huge. <laughs> it's just such an enormous presence. But but, you know, but she was here and, and so out came these amazing words. And I think that once we had some words to work with, we, we really had something that we could kind of both be visualizing or, or touching in, in some way. It was like an idea that possessed us. And, and she's actually done some incredible kind of political, she, she's made some pretty amazing um, kind of political statements through her music throughout her career. It's mm. something that she's kind of known for um, about really contentious topics and a lot of women's rights topics too, about women having you know, having freedom and having rights and, and, and being strong and, and being accepted and being free. And so I, I was pleased that, that I think part of that energy seemed to kind of 
belong with and this thing that we were making together. I felt like it really brought some power to it. And I, I find the way that she operates within those terms just so inspiring. And so, you know, I, I was really inspired by just the, the way she was singing the lines. It turns out that it, it had this amazing meaning too. But, you know, she she interestingly kind of, she mumbled uh, her way through the, the first afternoon and, you know, little fragments came out. And I, I thought I thought perhaps that she was just kind of finding a melody and she was only here for two hours. She had to scoot. I think she was going to the airport, straight to the airport. So when she left the house after the first day of the session, I had this vocal groove and I had a few of these, these kind of these words, these sentences that she was beginning to piece together. And when she came back about three weeks later, when she was next in London, um, I had sort of put together the, the whole piece, including some of the Ganawa music from before, into this other section. I, I was kind of weaving it between itself. And and I'd, I'd cut out sort of musical uh, sounds and shapes and melodies that I enjoyed from things that she was thinking about. And I pasted them over this groove. And when I played it to her, I said, well, you know, perhaps today we can go through and and actually record these, you know, as actual real sentences and do it properly. And, and she said, no, no, that that's it. Like, that's that's a full sentence already. I'm saying blah, 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 blah. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. It really, it flowed, it just flowed. And I guess she's yeah. used to the, the synergy between words and music in a, in a really incredible way. And my brain is much more kind of, I suppose, at home with, with musical relationships. So in some ways it was an interesting collaboration because you've got, you know, such a gifted and iconic storyteller as Umu mixed with somebody like myself, who I, I guess is used to telling stories without necessarily relying on the words to convey the meaning. I, I love the meaning that's buried within all of these different layers and, and stuff. So it was a, just a, a really, really fascinating kind of moment in time. And, and so she came back the second day. And on the second day, we, we worked on this other section at the beginning here, which was more of the sort of Ganawa type stuff that I was talking about earlier on. And, and this is how it ended up sounding. And that's one of the interesting things about the track is when the brass comes in, it's like, hey, I wasn't expecting It's that. like, hey, where did that come from? Yeah, so the brass was recorded by my very good friend, uh, Josh Arcaleo, who was a real hero of mine, actually, when I was growing up as a, as a jazz pianist, because he's just an absolute beast of the saxophone. So it's all saxophone. And it was all recorded here in this very room. A couple of weeks later, I realized I wanted to do some real horn stuff. And so I called up Josh and, and he came over with the sax and we laid down some of these things. And this is what it sounds like on its own. Uh, it's just so precise the way that he places these things and I've actually got my Manchester stomp clap samples underneath that and uh, I love the idea that you've got these strange horns that kind of shout and they're almost like percussion instruments because they're so short but they kind of help tell the story by interjecting between the stanzas of, of the things that Umu is, is talking about and so yeah, Josh was was amazing, and and you know I kind of sang him these parts. I said, okay, it goes ba 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 and he would hear it, and then he'd sing it, which is a really wonderful process. It was almost as fast as me sort of hearing something in my own mind and singing it myself, because he was his ears are so good that he was able to just kind of pick up on on the things I was doing. And uh, as you fast forward to the end of the song, Josh takes this absolutely blazing saxophone solo over the final uh, minute of the song, because I, I definitely wanted to carve him a space where he could actually play, you know kind of as Josh plays and, and this is what that sounds like. 
fantastic. I love the way it blends with the voices as well. Yeah, I wanted the voices um, to be part of the sort of fabric of this energy building and building because this is almost like the culmination of Jesse Volume 2 in terms of energy. A lot of the first half of the album is is cosy, I guess. It's gentle, softly spoken. And this is kind of like one of the first moments where I lift the lid a little bit and it's like, no, there's real raging kind of power going on here. And Josh was the man for the job. Yeah. So he is the other featured artist on on that track because you mentioned there were two, but Umu gets the the credits on on the album sleeve or for you know, sure. Uh, unless yeah. you go into the the deeper credit notes, which obviously we should all pour over. We, we should and, absolutely and examine. Yeah, Josh is a, a really important part of the fabric, and and actually here also there's an amazing bass player called Robin Malarkey who I've been touring with for a, a year or so. Who's just I, I mean he's probably my favourite bass player in the world, and and he plays some bass over this final section too. Uh, underneath Josh's solo. And actually my friend James Madrin also played some drums here. And so I think I was excited about this particular moment of the song feeling like it was done live and it felt live. And obviously I couldn't quite get Josh and Rob and James all in the same room at once, but Rob and James recorded their tracks simultaneously uh, and that was really cool. And and then Josh came over and sort of blazed and it felt like it was bringing this life that I, I, you know, I feel when I play with others, which is actually kind of rare for me to achieve in this room when I do everything myself and I'm playing the drums and the bass and stuff, which I tend to do normally. It, you know, there is a, a kind of feeling of synergy and connection to musicians that you can't fake it. You have to do it. And so I wanted some of that for this particular moment. So actually there, there's a few musicians in, in this song who are kind of playing together and I almost step out of the room at this moment and just kind of, I mean, I'm singing all the all the accompaniment figures and stuff, but it's kind of this, just this these three humans or four, if you count me, just kind of energizing each other. And I think that's really... It's really energizing for me to hear it and, and it's it's powerful stuff. Yeah. Fantastic. Are you gonna we can we hear that? I'd like to hear it again. For and, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me see where that begins. It is really interesting hearing them play, particularly for an artist such as yourself, who we know can do everything himself. You know, and that one of the the great kind of calling cards of Jacob Collier is the solo performance, where you layer all these different things mm. together in a really energetic way. You know, you're running around <laughs> the space that you have in order to achieve it all in the in the time given, um, and and make it all chime together. But at the same time, you really appreciate and love hearing that energy that the individual musicians can bring together when they're all locked in together as well. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting approach in the sense that as somebody who can kind of, in a way, do it all himself, you relinquish that control. I mean, was there ever a controlling element to, of you, Jacob? I mean, do you think, no, well, actually, I can do better. I can <laughs> do it like this. Or is it more just you want to capture things um, quickly so you think, right, I'll just get on with it and do it myself? It's a really important question. Um I guess I'd say that when I was learning the ropes of this room and of the recording environment, uh, I was kind of of the mind that I wanted things to be really perfect and I wanted them to be exactly symmetrical and right and organized and balanced and stuff like that. And I'm actually really glad that I was like that because I think that there's an area of learning that you can't unlock unless you're willing to go to the absolute bone of the materials that we're using and understanding how they can be used. And so when I recorded In My Room, which is this debut album I recorded, I, I think that was almost like my kind of thesis for thinking, 
this is what happens if I put everything together myself and I try and make sure everything's in the right place and stuff, kind of like as I knew then, that was my piece. And so one of the main charms and pulls for me to do Jesse was I knew it was going to break that open. I knew it was going to explode the kinds of borders that I placed around things that I felt I understood. I mean, actually, even if you understand something in a way that's not rigid, even if it's like, I understand that this is imperfect, or I understand that this is flexible, it's still a certainty. And I think a certainty can be a block, which is something I think about a lot in terms of creativity. Like the moment I think I know something for sure, it's probably getting smaller, <laughs> seeing as kind of everything is infinite uh, and, and stuff. So I, I reckon, you know, when it comes to something like, you know, being controlling or, or being perfectionist, there's, there's always two sides of the coin. You know, on the one hand, it wouldn't work to go into a session and say, everybody can do whatever they want with no rules and no boundaries. Um, and I'm not going to edit it at all afterwards. I mean, that can sometimes work, but I think for the kind of music I was wanting to write, it was a different process. And and also it doesn't work at all if you go in and say, if you don't do it this exact way, then you know, you're know you fired or I'll just do it myself and all this kind of stuff. So I think if I wasn't already kind of interested in destroying the, the locked-inness of my kind of process and understanding, I, I, there's no way I would have undertaken the project. You know, I wanted to have my world shooken up a little bit by collaborators and musicians the world over. I wanted to be in the deep end of my comfort zone. And obviously, yeah, understanding things is wonderful and offers a, a you know a wealth of possibility at all times. But it's also a little bit of a burden when you're when you're thinking about a, a process and something and you can kind of see all the parts of it that could possibly be fixed or, you know, nudged into place or quantized or whatever. It's like, ah, oh, that note is, you know, 28 hundredths of a semitone sharp and you know these are thoughts that like really go through my head sort of on the daily like I can I can hear those degrees of pitch but actually at the end of the day there are some moments in music where those just don't apply and one of those is live performance and I've really learned that I guess having taken the internal world onto the road it was yeah that, that process of realizing that I have to let part of the things go I can't be correcting you know hundreds of semitones difference in pitch as I it, it doesn't work like that it's more important to get the spirit of the thing going. And then there are other times in my musical life where those th that knowledge and awareness does apply. And that's cool too. You know, you mentioned the arrangement of Moon River earlier on. And, you know, Moon River has a bunch of microtonal modulations where it goes into keys that don't really exist. And it's really, really careful skullduggery that takes a lot of kind of patience and, and skill, I guess, to go through and say, you know, actually this D sharp needs to lean slightly higher on the upper side of the note so that it guides the ear. And, you know, and once again, there's, there's never really a, a technical thing that exists in in my music that doesn't have a reason to be there, you know, but but I think it's it's always about trying to find the right balance between controlling the elements so that the gravity is optimum and the experience is optimum for the listener and then leaving the space for the crazy thing to happen that no one expects and that no one can see coming. And, and you know, one of the easiest ways to do that is just to collaborate with other musicians and not tell them what to do, you know, which is one of the things that I went into the whole of Jesse feeling, you know, on the one hand, there's, yeah, I've got to write the orchestral parts out and I've, they've got to kind of play the notes on the page and it's my responsibility to put the right notes there. But you know, with someone like Umu or someone like, like Leanne Le Havas or someone like Daniel Caesar, I think the joy of the process was thinking, look, here's a kind of starting point. Let's go completely out of our own way here. Let's let's do something different. And maybe we'll end up back where we started, or maybe we'll end up something totally different. And this song, Nebaluyo, is important to me for, you know, for a few reasons. But one of those reasons is it's a real testament to, you know, something I planned in a controlled environment not being the coolest thing that happened in that day. You know, the coolest thing that happened was the thing that I planned being a springboard for something else that was completely cool and took both of us by surprise and meant that we were both able to kind of be spontaneous and be ourselves in that moment and then kind of 
re-synergize the whole of the fabric of all these ideas and make you know put them together into something that makes sense but leaving a little bit of that that lid off which i think is a real thrill for me as someone who's been used to his own controlled environment for such a long time yeah yeah totally um how does your approach to using plugins and virtual sounds compare to using live instruments I mean, would you still play and record a virtual instrument as if it was live oh good question uh I guess it depends what the function of the virtual instrument is and what the function of, of the plugin is. You know, some some virtual instruments and plugins I think are designed to give you ideas in the moment. You know, and that's really cool. And I love experimenting with things that sort of have knobs and dials and give you crazy ideas. I mean, if you look at something like Omnisphere, for example, the classic Spectrosonics sort of ten thousand sounds library, you can open up an Omnisphere window, click shuffle, and hit a sound, and you're you're, you're going to have an idea because it's just so rich and so dynamic and kind of impossible to to predict what's going to come out of the machine. It's just this, you know, unending source of just delightful, brilliant sounds that blow your mind and, and stuff. And and then, you know, then there's something like Contact, which you can go in and really fine tune. You know, you can go in and control the exact attack, exact release and whatever of, of specific sounds. You can design your own instruments, build your own sample libraries out of the voice or out of a weird sound you find or whatever. And, and even within the stock sounds, you can actually go into the back end of Contact and you can, you know, you can give it weird rules and, and stuff. And I love that. I love that you can have the control to go in and, and manage that. So contact isn't really something that I would necessarily think of as a sort of spontaneous place to have ideas, whereas Omnisphere probably would be. In the same way that something like a, you know, something like a crazy compressor will give me a, a particular sound that might give me an idea. You know, for example, the RC20 plugin, which I know is popular among R&B pop producers nowadays, it has a bunch of tape simulators, and so it gives a crackle here, tape here, VHS, and whatever. And, you know, you can add sort of distortion in interesting ways and you can add an interesting reverb and a little bit of discrepancy. This is a feature called magnetic where it can cut out and stutter a little bit as though it's real tape. Um, those things can be great just for capturing a feeling. And sometimes when I'm writing music and I think, well, the idea is this, but it doesn't feel like it's in a, it, it's in the right container. I want to build a container around the idea to give it some wings, you know, to give it some energy. And something like, you know, the RC20 plugin for me is almost like playing it, as you would say, live because it's part of the idea as it's being gestated live. It's like composition is really improvisation in stop time and it still takes momentum to guide it, to continue it. And I think a lot of my my process in the last 15 years has been just kind of learning my circuitry and how to navigate it in proper ways. You know, how can I get the circuitry to work and not be interrupted and to be as fluent as possible? And so something like RC20, you know, can give you an, an immediate vibe. Whereas something like, for example, the LFO tool, which I think is XLN audio, um, LFO tool is a is like a post production sculpting thing, you know, and people use it as a sort of sidechain compression equivalent. But you can actually do some interesting stuttery things, rhythmic things, you know, cutting up sounds, you know, and things like this. And you can actually you can obviously assign the LFOs to whatever you want, filters and all sorts of other things besides. So LFO tool is a, is a really fascinating thing, not necessarily for kind of like playing live music, but for thinking now I've got this sound, how can I make it sound just right, have just the right amount of bounce or energy or or whatever, and and so. I guess to answer your question, I'd say that different things are for, for different purposes. Um, but I love that. I love that you can examine a sound from all sorts of different angles and, and figure out kind of what works with from this huge array of what we now have available to us, which is this magnificent kind of wealth of sonic options and that exists at, at all times. Yeah, fantastic. Absolutely fascinating. And we're going to take another quick break, but maybe we should hear the chorus or something of Nabalio just to kind of round off this section. Let's do it. <laughs> You're the mother of the world, you're the force that brings the life out of 
So great to hear that, having heard the stories that you were telling us about it, Jacob. Amazing. We're going to look at a track from Jesse Volume 3 in just a moment. Absolutely fascinating stuff about Nabalio. Uh, now on to Jesse Volume 3, Jacob. So, I mean, this, you know, it's interesting listening to this album, having heard the other two, you know, because it does explore another sound world, you know, and in some ways... It takes us closer almost to one more genre-specific sound. I mean, this seems like of the three, this seems to occupy that R&B world a lot more directly. Mm, Yeah. I think for me, one of the things that uh, I've loved so much about Volume 3 and the process of working on it this year has just been the sonic element of the music. You know, I've spent so much of my life thinking about harmony and about rhythm and about melody and, and all this stuff and the relationships between them all. But in terms of sound... There's a whole world of discovery that I feel like I've been able to have with regard to you know my relationship with these particular songs, uh, which I think is is powerful, and I've I've loved having the ability to uh, zone in on those with these extra four months, these bonus four months that I've been gifted because of this crazy virus, uh, and so uh, yeah, I was always excited to open up the kind of musical landscape into something that resembled R and B or soul or pop and, and that style because I love that kind of music. You know that music is highly energizing to me and I've always kind of wanted to do my own kind of Jacobian crack at it and so you know I, I think I, Jacobian I, think I like that. Jacobian yeah exactly <laughs> it's uh, gonna become a term you know <laughs> well I don't know I, I guess the the Jacobian era is technically under the reign of I think it was King James the sixth so I might have to sort of override him a little bit sorry James right but it's it's gonna take on a new meaning <laughs> oh great brilliant um but yeah I, I thought it might be fun just to talk a little bit about all I need because uh you know, mm. this was a, a really important song for me in terms of almost like a, a turning point, I suppose, about just what was possible in terms of music. And one thing I found with Volume 3 is that because I was looking, you know, slightly more into the kind of pop space and, and therefore, you know, things that I could be considering that I hadn't before are things like, you know, can the song go into playlists and will the song be played on the radio and things like this, which are really cool things to consider. One of the main things I found with Volume 3 was that the songs were all slightly shorter. You've got, you've got With the Love of My Heart, so six and a half minutes and you've got Nibalio, you know, it's like, I think about five minutes or so long and yeah, five minutes, 18. And, and so, and so the nice thing about these songs and the challenge was how do I keep these short without sort of going off on one, you know, and being too extravagant about whatever it was going on in my imagination, which I love. And there's always time for that. But the challenge here was, you know, let's do something that feels kind of simpler and see how much we can perfect it and get it to feel really good. And, and obviously some of the kind of recipes of these sounds, um, have been inspiring me for a long time, but I don't really understand how some of these sounds are made, you know, the sounds that you hear on the radio. So, you know, things like sidechain compression and a kick that hits super hard and, you know, sort of synthesizers that are really crisp and defined and vocals that have really, really intense high-end sparkle. And it's kind of like, well, I, I may as well just give this a shot, you know? And so, you know, I really enjoyed kind of thinking about, yeah, how I could do my own version of the music that I've loved and sneak in some other crazy musical stuff while I was at it. Yeah. And it's really interesting what you came up with. Um, with All I Need, I mean, there are echoes of Pharrell and the Neptunes and Prince. And you've talked about your influences and inspirations and you've explicitly uh, referred to them in that you've often reconstructed or reworked other people's songs. And the way that you do it always shows a great love 
of the song that you're tackling each time and and yet the way that you analyse it and deconstruct it to understand it for your own end. Mm. It's absolutely fascinating. And and I think you can kind of hear this on volume three. You know, all that work that you've put in mm. comes out in your own attempt to get on those playlists and be heard on the radio. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a, a really fun challenge. So so all I need, um, it's kind of like an, an R&B song, I guess. Um, mm. And I wrote this song on, I think it was December the 14th last year, 2019. Um, and I was super excited. I was like, oh yeah, this is cool. And it's funny because after you've written songs like With the Love of My Heart and Nebalio, you, you know, I think my idea of songwriting is so ambitious as the bottom line that something like All I Need was kind of astoundingly easy to write for the most part. It's like, oh, is it, is, have I finished the song already? Is it just a, I've done a verse and a chorus and, you know, if I don't need to do a great big extravagant burst of incandescent energy and change the time signature, like, then maybe it's done, you know, maybe it's just finished. <laughs> and that was a really lovely kind of feeling. It's like, oh, this is much easier than I thought. And so I'm getting way faster at completing songs because I think I'm realising that a song is not a production, you know, a song is just a song. And so, yeah, with with All I Need, there are a couple of key sections that I, you know, I kind of worked with and, and worked on. And, and the first one is this sort of classic uh, synth part, which was I guess my kind of starting point for the for the song. Hi. I love the way that I feel when you put your arms over me. So kind of simple enough, right? It's got a melody and there's a chord and it changes from G flat to E flat and that's fun and and it's cool. And and so I kind of established this groove and I did this. This is a classic example of kind of mumbling the melody at first and thinking, well, and then you go back later and you make it like, oh, I love the way that you feel when you put your arms over me. Okay, that will do, you know, something like that. So let me see if I can pull up an old demo of, of this because this was the kind of song that was deceptively easy to start and then when I got into it, actually, the chorus was a real challenge to get right. You know, a sort of pop chorus is this secret recipe that, you know, everyone wants to be able to write a pop chorus. It's like this sort of winning thing to be able to do. And and it was a really interesting challenge for me because, you know, I, I hadn't done something like this before, really. And all of my first ideas are, are really complex and rich and deep and stuff. So a lot of it was about scaling back that chorus. Uh, but this is what the first demo of the song sounded like on the day that I wrote it. So this was like, you know, three or four hours in in my room in, in the studio and throwing paint and this was kind of like what it what it felt like there's that mumbling <laughs> yeah I knew I wanted it to change here. This is kind of what it was. Cause every time I think about it, can't stop. <laughs> I don't know what's going on with the vocal production. <laughs> that is all I need. So you can 
kind of hear what I'm thinking about. And if you listen carefully to that, actually, there's about three or four different melodies I'm singing at once. I'm just trying to find what that melody really is. Mm. And this chorus, man, I tell you, this was a real humdinger for me. I must have written sort of six or seven different versions of it until I got to the final one. I, I thought it might be fun just to quickly show you some of those. Um, yeah, that would be great. Some of them, they're, they're so funny, you know, and it's just how do you get exactly the right balance of kind of harmony and melody and all this stuff? And these are my different solutions to the, to the problem. And is that Mahalia already, or is that you? That's actually me. So, um, right. in the early days of All I Need, I sang Mahalia's part <laughs> uh, before I'd figured out who was going to be willing to sing it. And actually, I'll play you the verse of this version because it's, it's really funny. So basically the way I did this was I, I slowed down the, the track using very speed and logic to about three semitones lower, sang it and then sped it back up again. So it sounds kind of weird, like it's kind of a bit feminine, you know. And this is a, yeah. a trick I use all the time for things like this, but this is what it sounds like. Cause every time I think about it, can't stop thinking about it, you know. Cause you are all I need. And that's what I sent to Mahalia. I said, like, this is kind of the vibe I'm going for. And she right. laughed. She said, what is this? You know. And then back came this brilliant, effortless kind of, this vocal, which I'll play you right now. And it's just, she just, she's so natural, Mahalia. You know, she has this wonderful unpretentiousness and kind of, and just a beauty about the way that she sings, which is so, so genuine and so lovely. Cause every time I think about it, can't stop thinking about it. And then obviously the choruses happen, and so, so the chorus I just played you here, this one, um, is the wanna make love with you all night chorus. Wanna make love with you all night. <laughs> it's a bit lame, really. I was looking for it. It's like some, there's something there and there's this key change in the middle, which in the end I ended up losing, which I think was definitely the right decision. Um, let me see if I can find a different version of the chorus. Key change. <laughs> Bit dramatic, I think. <laughs> But I, I loved the kick that that gives you, but it, it wasn't quite right. And there are a few different versions, actually, when it goes to this E minor chord. Um, and it's funny, isn't it? Because it, it's so deceptively simple. When you listen to a pop song, it's like, the chorus feels great. Yeah. It's harder than it looks to get it to feel yeah. like that, at least fr from my perspective, having never done it before in my life. And and so it was it was cool and, and interesting to, to sort of figure out 
the best recipe from my perspective of getting it right. And, and so this is how the chorus ended up sounding at the end of the story. That leads us on to Ty Dolla Sign, of course, because Ty Dolla Sign is the other, he was the other missing ingredient with this particular song. And, and when, I, when I first recorded this song, I, I had this idea that there'd be like a rapper in the middle. I think I actually might, I might have done a really bad rap myself, which I might be able to play you. Cause all the lines on my face may be do a disgrace But I'm not gonna think of all about the fact that it's a fake Fucking the fuck take a face But maybe it looks like I'll remember all the pieces I've applied I mean it's a horrendous, so bad It was like a one take thing of like This is kind of the blah 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 here though, awful yeah. And so my original intention was like Oh I'll ask a really crazy rapper to do this You know, someone amazing and, and stuff And so I asked a couple of people and they all said no And I thought okay, it must be something I'm missing here and so in the end, I, I suddenly realized that Ty, he just might be the guy to bring something magical to it. And Ty Dollarsign and I had been working together for about, I suppose about three years beforehand. I'd, I'd done a couple of sessions for his music and I'd laid down some vocals and you know, we were kind of friends. And Ty's one of these deceptive figures in pop music who is kind of known for his kind of A-list pop star um, rep, you know, but actually he's a serious cat and he really hears stuff and he really enjoys kind of deep music and music that goes harmonically into unexpected places and stuff. So... You know, I, I just suddenly thought like, yeah, this song is maybe the right balance of something that Ty could could contribute to. And, you know, I sent it over and and it was just this amazing bundle of energy came back. And I've got just all these incredible, you know, incredible stems that he sent me of him singing all these amazing kind of ad-libby things with his kind of classic auto-tune sound on and, and all this stuff. And I, let me see if I can show you some of that stuff. Yeah, that would be great. Underneath the moonlight, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the interesting thing about this is you sort of think, oh yeah, that sounds like Tidola sign. But he's actually effortlessly navigating these two key centers. You're in. And then do do. And so he was hearing all the chords and he, he knows how to apply his language to this thing that is maybe slightly, you know, left field for pop, but he, he's just got amazing ears. And so I think the privilege I felt with working with Ty on this particular song was that he brought his kind of signature universality, or the way he puts something, where he phrases something and the sound of his voice and yeah, including all of these plugins he uses, you know, it's so distinctive. It's such an iconic sound to this musical song. And I think he really kicked it up a gear, you know, and, and he was so excited. And he called me and said, man, I haven't felt like this in years. Like, this is a real, like, I'm having such a good time. It's a challenge and I'm I'm being pushed and stuff. Because I think someone like Ty spends a lot of his life doing things that are kind of just, you know, kind of poppy and central and maybe a little dull or, or a little predictable. But this was something where his ears were able to to kind of run free. And I think he really, really enjoyed that and so I, I love I loved seeing him respond in that way to the song and, and obviously he's he plays a really pivotal role in kind of lifting this song off the ground especially in this particular section which is right after the chorus where he kind of takes the lead for a second and it sounds like this Legend. 
That's what Mahalia meets Tadola sign, and it was a, a synergy that I immediately believed in. It was like, ah, oh, actually, this is this is a vibe. I'm into this. Yeah, totally. It, it's a great meeting, and it's interesting. Did they ever meet? Did they ever share a studio? Um, because you've done a few performances, haven't you, online where you've put together a performance mm. featuring, you know, some with just Mahalia, some with Ty Dollar Sign as well. And th- th- these are great videos that you've put together for people. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing it, what you can do. Oh, thank you. I mean, it's funny to think that we actually haven't ever met. I haven't even, I've never met <laughs> Mahalia. I've never met her. It's just so weird because she doesn't live too far from me, but it just quarantine hit just when we were, I was trying to get the song right. recorded. And so luckily for me, she was kind of logic savvy. You know, she loaded up logic in a computer, engineered it herself did it at home on a, on a little SM7 and and sent it right back. And it was like, wow, this is fantastic. Like, it's great. And I, I voice memoed her some pretty specific harmony parts for the chorus as well, which she did. With, she was really good-natured about it all, and, and, and she did it. Uh, and so it was cool, but I can't wait till we can actually play a gig and play this song and they can both be on stage. I think it would be so special, you know, to really, yeah. really realise some of these worlds that I've been building. Because, you know, if there's one thing I really miss this year, it's just it's that feeling of... You know, I've been designing, I've been constructing, I've been thinking, I've been zooming in and in, in, and then there's something that only touring can do, which is zoom out and have a party. You know, and I, I really can't wait for that moment to to come back around. Yeah, fantastic. I mean, you know, the extra time that uh, lockdown gave you to work on the album was really productive and a blessing in some strange ways. But uh, yeah, you also want the thing to be fully realised, and that's to take it on a stage and get all these brilliant collaborators together and enjoy the moment mm, uh, for exactly. what it is. You know. Totally, absolutely, um, completely and utterly agree. There's one other thing in All I Need that I thought might be fun to talk about, uh, mm. which was uh, something I've been wanting to do for ages, and I actually I did it on Moon River at uh, one moment too. Uh, but as many of us know or believe, the piano has uh, 12 notes on it. Uh, there are 12 available notes to be played on, on the piano, or so it may seem. So I, I've spent a lot of the last few years trying to break that apart because I, I get a kick out of su- such things. And so, you know, I've done lots of research into different tuning systems over the last few years. And it has come to my attention that actually, you know, there are other notes on the piano besides the ones that you see. You know, there's you've got C and you've got C sharp um, and D. Th- these are the 12 notes. And you can do all sorts of interesting things with these sounds. But for me... I've always been interested in what would it mean to go to a key that's not on the piano, you know, what's in between, you know, if you've got, if you've got F and E, then what about E, like, what do I do with that sound? Like, does it have a name, you know, E half sharp, yeah. F half flat or whatever. And so one of my missions has been to kind of bring this way of thinking into the music that I've been making. And so at the end of Moon River, I jump up into this joyous uh, half a semitone lift. It goes into the key of D half flat and it's a really really exciting moment. Uh, there was a moment as well with a Christmas arrangement I did of In the Bleak Midwinter back in 2017. This was the first time I ever did it and I went to the key of G half sharp and it was, it felt like a whole new dawn, you know. And so with All I Need, I was really inspired by these ideas and I, I wanted the second chorus to feel more euphoric than the first, but I didn't want to add any more layers because it was already pretty layered. And so I thought, well, how could I achieve this euphoria? How could it feel like another lift? And as we all know, you know, if you change key, if you're in C and then suddenly you go, into E flat, it feels like you've changed hue. You know, the color has changed, the landscape has changed. So modulating is a great way of adding mood, you know, adding energy. But I'd already modulated for the first chorus, so modulating wasn't novel. <laughs> and so what I decided to try was modulating, I suppose, one quarter of a tone or half a semitone higher than I had done in the first chorus for the second chorus. And so actually in the second chorus, I modulate to this key, which I suppose is, well, 
It's like E half flat in the sense that it's not this note, it's not this note, it's kind of, you know, that weird note in between. And so take a listen to this. This is the first chorus. Right, that's the key. Here's the second chorus. That sounds bad. That sounds right. So, let me see if I can A-B this. That's one, and then... So it's this tiny amount higher. It's like an almost like an imperceptible difference. But I believe that, in, especially in the West, we are very ingrained about what we believe to be a familiar key center and a sound that we know. And so this strange other key, this foreign non-pianistic key that goes beyond the 12 tones that we're used to, it has this subliminal effect of lifting up and it's almost like this untrodden snow. It's like, whoa, I've never been here before. This is crazy, you know? And that's the feeling I wanted to, to portray musically. And that's why it has a purpose is because the feeling is about you know, you're, you're in love with someone and it just feels freaking amazing. You know, it just feels so special and you feel like you're free and you can dance and you can sing and it's like, wow. And so the wonder of that, you know, that kind of sensation, I think there's something about the lift, the half a semitone lift that really kicks that into gear. And it's something that I was quite sort of pleased with um, when I sort of executed it in the end. It'll be impossible to play live, of course, because we've all got 12 fret instruments and a grand piano on stage. But I think there's something about the feeling of that being on the album, which, uh, you know, it's something I've been wanting to try for a long time. And I, I felt like all I need was the right moment to unleash it. So, so I did. Fantastic. And, and the way that that matches the mood and the feeling of the song mm. is very, very satisfying. Superb stuff. It's been absolutely fascinating, Jacob, to hear you unravel these songs. Uh, I am going to let you go um, because I know you've got other pressing engagements, but I've got a few quickfire questions that have come through via our listeners uh, so Freddie Rose via Instagram wants to know what was the first album you fell in love with? First time I fell in love with was actually Hotter Than July by Stevie Wonder. It's a, it's a 1980 album, Stevie Wonder, and that was on repeat for 10 years before I was 10. Wow, amazing. Um, Daniel Jams on Instagram, if you were to make a concept album, what would it be? Oh, I wonder if I'm making that right now. <laughs> it's almost like a concept of my whole universe, but I've got a few ideas. I'd love to write for film something to do with a concept that's visual and audio. I'd love to write music for machines to play where I'm in amongst the machines and I'm playing them and somehow operating within them. Um, I'd also like to do an album which is just songs with me on the piano and something really, really stripped down. And I don't know those kinds of concepts, but for me, I think there's something thrilling about taking away all the bells and whistles and making music with, with that. Yeah, because that is something you've done a tiny bit. There have mm. been a couple of songs and a couple of performances where it's just you and the guitar or you and the piano. I love that um, vibe. And yeah. it's fantastic. And it's interesting because when we see you do that, you know, this is a, an alternate Jacob Collier that we encounter. Mm. You know, one that if you were a different person um, with a different kind of musical education, that one that you might have concentrated on because that's exactly. the, a tried and tested route, isn't it, for people to just, oh, I sing a song and I do it like this. I sing, I I sing a song on the piano. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And there's yeah. something about that which is so special. And every time I play live, there's a moment where I'll do that. I'll sing a song on the piano and, and that's all it is. And there's something really liberating about that for me. Yeah. Um, Will has a question that relates to this in, in a way. Um, you know, because your songs are all so varied, and obviously you, you have done many different concerts and you've approached the performance in different ways. Do you think you can ever do it in such a way that would encompass the whole variety of what Jacob Collier does in a live show? 
<laughs> it's a difficult question to answer. I do have this pipe dream of kind of when Jesse Volume 4 comes out, doing an almighty kind of two-act thing with all the collaborators in the room, and you know, something like the Royal Albert Hall or something where it's like mm. everyone's there and the orchestra's there and the choirs are there. And, and we, we just sort of play the whole thing top to bottom. And I kind of wonder whether Jesse as a four album project might be a little bit of the sort of thesis of my 20s of like, this is kind of what I'm thinking about, you know, but but I, I'm not sure. I, I think it's difficult to define one one universe in an hour or two hours. You know, it's always a fresh thing that happens on that moment and in that moment only. But that's the challenge of, of the next year is to build a show so that when we can tour, we'll take a show on the road, which which can visit all of these different elements. And it can go super quiet and it can be intimate and folky and then it can be kind of huge and orchestral and brazen and it can also be super funky and kind of dangerously digital as well and I, I believe it's possible I don't know about everything about Jacob Collier being on that show I think that that would be overwhelming even for me um, but uh, I think there there is hopefully a way to kind of tell the story that I'm starting to piece together and, and have have been doing so for the last few years yeah yeah and uh, L Rogland on uh, Instagram has one important question after Jesse what do you wish to do? Uh, AD. Um, I'm not sure. I, I don't know. I don't know the answer. I'm, I'm planning on not knowing the answer for a little while longer as well. I think it would be a shame to know the answer to that question right now. And so I'm leaving it open. But I, in my mind, when I started Jesse, it was like, well, after Jesse is finished, then I'll be able to start my career <laughs> because I would have planted all the seeds I need to actually do stuff, get started on stuff. And it's funny because my career sort of accidentally is happening now. But um the goal of it was like, how can I stretch myself so that I'm prepared to do whatever I imagine? And and I've got some kind of language I can work with. You know, I can be playing in a club one night and I can be playing in a church the next night and I can be writing for an orchestra the next night. And I, if I want to live that life, which I think I do, then how can I clue myself up? And this project was almost about that. It's like, how can I stretch my understanding to the point of having experience in each of these worlds to a point enough to talk the language, enough to build relationships and stuff. So Honestly, I, man, who knows? I don't know, but I'm excited about what on earth I'm going to be up to in, in the next few years. And, and I, I look forward to undertaking the journey. Yeah, totally. Um, we have a, a couple of quick repeat questions we'd like to ask all of our subjects here on Tape Notes. First of which is kit. Is there a piece of kit that you absolutely adore that you can't live or create without? Wow. Well, I'm not sure whether Logic counts as a piece of kit, but I would say Logic Pro is my one and only love. You know, it's like a really, really important canvas for me. And in terms of one other piece of gear, honestly, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I was brought up on one SM58 and Logic. Until I was 20, that's all I used for everything I ever recorded, including the, the all my first YouTube videos that, that sort of went viral and stuff. It was one SM58 and an iPad and, and Logic. So I'm a non-believer in the fact that you need loads and loads of gear to make something meaningful. But nowadays, I do have this amazing pair of monitor speakers, which are Key 3s. Key is K-I-I. I don't know if you've heard them, but Key is this ast- make astonishing speakers. And, and it's got a, you know, a huge amount of dynamic range and a huge amount of, uh, of low end without a sub. And it's, it's kind of mind-blowing. And, and for this particular room, I really love them. So, so that's something I'd say that I, I really, really enjoy about my current setup. But I, I don't think you need a, anything spectacular to to get creative honestly maybe overarchingly my career just my phone is the best thing because i can do voice memos i can film music videos on my phone now you know wide angle lens i've made all sorts of crazy official videos with it and i spread the word to my fans and followers and stuff why that means too so i think for me maybe that's a not not particularly a, a unique answer but i really i'm indebted to such a capable portable device and our final question is a piece of advice have you received or could you give a piece of advice 
for people? Ooh. Well, I would say don't wait for things to be possible before you do them, because things become possible when you start doing them. That's succinct and very meaningful. Jacob, thank you so much for taking the time out and digging out all these stems, all these old recordings for us to kind of get a real uh, window. And uh, you know, you've really drawn the curtains back into these songs on, on Jesse's volume one, two and three. Thank you so much. Thanks, Johnny. You're most welcome. And we should play out with another piece of music. So should we go for another track from Jesse volume three to round things off? Yeah. What do you think we should hear? Oh, well, there are two that come to mind. One is the song with Daniel Caesar, Time Alone With You. That's kind of a groovy, funky one. And then there's Sleeping On My Dreams, which is a bit of a banger. So perhaps Sleeping On My Dreams might be a fun way to kind of celebrate the ending. That's a brilliant suggestion. Let's hear that now. Here goes. Thank you again, Jacob. Absolutely. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you have a moment, do tell your friends and leave us a review. It all really helps. Thanks to those of you who have already donated to the show. I'm just one part of the team that brings you tape notes. It relies on your support. If you'd like to donate, please head to our website. To ask a question on a future episode or find out who's coming up, head to our socials and on Instagram you can see pictures from the recording sessions for each episode of Tape Notes. Thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. I be your line fit. Oh well. My bed is made of feathers. I'll fall asleep, whatever. Now, cause I've been sleeping all my dreams. Ah, and I can't remember what I mean to you. And everything is what it seems. Ah, Sleeping on my dreams ah, Cause I've been thinking about some things ah, And I do believe how many days are through Don't think I'm lost without your wings ah, ah, I've been sleeping on my dreams ah. So I imagine we were playing a game Something like you could be an animal All I had to do was be tame